How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? I hope you heard John laughing and giggling there. He's doing his best. He's a he's a combination of Barry White and a tennis umpire this morning. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, that's a good one. Barry White would have made a great tennis uh, umpire. Yeah, wouldn't he? Fifteen love. <laughs> Advantage McWilliams. John is taking the mickey out of me because my tennis career is uh, being resuscitated. Just call me me Novak, right? Djokovic, I'll turn into a Serb anti-vaxxer. Marker, the only reason you were doing tennis again is to go to the tennis club discos. The tennis club discos. That's it, Mark. That's your driving force there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was almost at the the wrong side of the tracks turning up. (laughs) (laughs) The tennis club disco. Anyway, how are you doing there? It is great. Uh, We are about to talk about all sorts of economic things. I hope that your weekend was wonderful. I hope your week is going well. I hope life is... John's upset about Pascal Donoghue and a few (laughs) grand missing. I must admit, it did strike me as sort of a, a storm and not even a teacup. But Marker, actually, there is something on my mind. A big economic question. I a big sense. economic, and it is a, it is a question because I, I was reading a lot over the last while about the proposal to create a new currency in South America. Yes. And, and just for, for anyone who, just to bring up to speed, both Argentina and Brazil are coming together to have a summit to introduce this new currency. I think they're going to call it a SUR. Yep. Or South. And then they were going to invite all the other Latin American countries. It's going to be like the second or third biggest currency, trade, yeah. currency in, in the world. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We'll talk about that. Well, I have a whole bunch of questions. Go. So first of all, I'm going to just sling them out to you and then yeah. we'll, we'll pick them off. What does it mean for the dollar? Is the okay. dollar losing its position as the base currency for the, the world? Also, how do you just set up a new currency. Okay. How do you do that? And also, if it is between Brazil and Argentina and a few other countries mm-hmm. that get involved, who actually issues the, the, the currency? currency? And is there a central bank? And do they set, you know, like yeah. the EU, do they set interest rates and all that kind of stuff? And there's so yeah. much. There's so, so much. So the first, the first thing to ask is, why would Brazil and Argentina, two sovereign countries, decide that they, they should share a currency? That's yeah. the first thing. And the major reason is 
because both Brazil and Argentina, with the peso and the real, have suffered continuing bouts of hyperinflation over the years. Yeah. Not least because their central banks have printed money under orders from their governments at certain stages. Mm. But more importantly for them, you have the two biggest countries in Latin America. You have enormous firepower potentially there. And yet they are both pauperized when it comes to money. And by that I mean they are both dependent on the dollar. So if you go to Argentina, as I've been loads of times, right? Yeah. Uh, what you'll find is that people use the peso for buying smokes and fags and drinks, but they yeah. use the dollar for buying houses. Okay. So what has basically happened is there's a thing in economics called Gresham's Law, which is that bad money eventually elbows out good money. So what tends to typically happen is if you're in a country where the people are pricing big purchases, which is in a sense their savings in mm. a different currency, there's something fundamentally wrong with the currency. And that's the case for Brazil and Argentina. Yeah. And the reason is that the currency has been betraying people all the time as they have used hyperinflation as a way of trying to solve their many, many problems. And what's going on in Argentina, is that mirrored in Brazil? To a lesser extent, but over okay. if you look at the over the long period, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. So the second thing, so they want to wean themselves off the addiction of the dollar. So they have to create a currency that they would regard as harder. They also want a currency that reflects their economic strength, which is quite significant. These are big, big countries. Yeah. And Brazil is the fifth largest economy in the world. Mm. People forget that. It's a mm. huge, yeah, huge yeah. economy. And Brazil is also the country that's probably going to feed the world most in the coming generations. It's got massive agriculture. It's, you know, but the problem with Brazil, as he, Brazil was once dismissed by General de Gaulle, which is General de Gaulle went on a trip to Brazil in the 1960s. Yeah. And he came back and he was asked by the French press, what did you think of Brazil? And he said, Brazil, this is not a serious country, right? Jesus. So basically he was saying, right? And they also, Brazilians will also tell you that one of the great slogans is Brazil is the future, right? That's one of the great slogans of Brazil. But lots of Brazilians say, we kind of like it in the present. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. And the Argentina is the same. So then you think, how do you form that? Well, the blueprint for doing this is the euro. Yeah. So there is a blueprint for creating a new currency and a fixed currency. The intellectual backdrop to the whole thing is a thing called the Mundell Fleming model of optimal currency areas, John. Oh, now, you I really like want to get into it. So Mundell and Fleming were two Canadian I'm sorry economists. I asked this question. But it's very interesting <laughs> because when Quebec in the 1960s wanted to leave Canada, mm. one of the big negotiating issues for the elite, not the average person, but for the elite, is what currency will the Quebecers use if they leave? Okay. Right? And two economists, Canadian economists, one called Mundell and Fleming, they won a Nobel Prize for this. They were working out of the University of Western Ontario, which I think is in a place called London, Ontario, maybe. Okay. And very, very good, very, very good economic school, extremely good macroeconomic school. And they came up with this idea of the theory of optimal currency areas, which is that certain regions should share the same currency because labor flows between them are significant, capital flows between them are significant, okay, yeah. and trade flows between them are significant. So if you're really, really integrated with each other, in the way Germany and France would be, or Spain and Portugal would be, or France, Germany, Italy yeah. would be, then it makes sense to have a single currency. Yeah, okay, right? yeah, going on with that. The dilemma is having a single currency in countries that don't trade with each other, which is a dilemma for Ireland, because Ireland 
although we do a huge amount of trade with the EU, we also do a massive amount of trade with America. So if you were to superimpose economic theory on Ireland, we would not have the euro. We would maintain the punt because our trade flows are so varied. Or the dollar? Well, but joining the dollar would be highly politically inappropriate because it would mean that we're basically in the American worldview yeah, as yeah. members of the EU. But if you're intellectually honest about it, from an economic perspective, you would say that the euro is an inappropriate currency for Ireland. And one right. of our dilemmas in Ireland, which is this boom bust that we're going to talk about, is a function of having an inappropriate currency. Because what actually happens in Ireland is that when Germany, because of our trade flows, are more pro-American, yeah. and to a degree this Britain is involved as well, mm. a different currency, what tends typically to happen in Ireland is the, is the following, which is that when the dollar is weak, right, and the euro is strong, it's bad news for Ireland because we depend so much on American investment. Yeah. And when the dollar is weak, Ireland looks expensive as a place to invest. Right, right? okay. And also you see that in terms of trade flows going through Ireland, so much goes to the United States, that balancing a single currency with these requirements of the economy is difficult. But yeah. we do it, right? Yeah, yeah. But intellectually, you wouldn't have done that, you know, if you were to be pure in your economics. Okay. <laughs> now, coming back to Argentina and Brazil, their trade flows are significant. What they're trying to do, they're trying to take the euro model and they're trying to say, look, that will offer us some protection from what the world would describe as the exorbitant privilege of the United States of being the reserve currency. So mm. when you're the reserve currency, right, the United States, you print dollars. And with those dollars that you print, other people have to sell real goods yes. to buy those things, yeah. right? So the obligation is on the rest of the world to sell real stuff to acquire dollars, right? The Americans just print them. Right? Yeah. So the privilege of being the reserve currency is phenomenal. But I come back to that idea of money, right? The reason that money is so difficult for people to understand is that money derives its value from use. So it's like language. Yeah. So the reason the English language, we've talked about this before, is so valuable, right? And the Basque language is not. Yes. Is yeah. that you can't speak to people in Basque. Yeah. So what amazingly, the exorbitant privilege of us as English speakers naturally born native English speakers means that we are in effect speaking a language that the rest of the world has to learn. And think about the dollar. The extraordinary privilege of the Americans is they print a currency, a piece of paper that the rest of the world has to work to get. Mm. And so the Argentinians and the Brazilians are saying that over the years, the dollar has become the de facto currency of their countries. Yeah. Now, what that does is that completely emasculates policy because it means that Argentina and Brazil are not sovereign countries. So if the people yeah. are using the dollar to, for example, clear their house trading yeah. or save, it means that the country's economic policies are judged in Washington and not in Buenos Aires. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. what happens okay. if the country's economic policies are regarded as not being in the right track, they have currency crises. People sell pesos, buy dollars, and so they're mugged by the dollar. Mm. So their sovereignty mm. is mugged by having this situation that over the last 40 years has evolved where Argentinians and Brazilians don't trust their own currency. So what they're hoping to do is do what, for example, the Irish and the Greeks and the Spaniards did. When we got the euro, we in effect got a German currency without paying the price. Okay? Right. Yeah, so yeah. we spent the 70s, 80s, and 90s following the German currency, right, in the ERM, trying to pretend that we were little Germans. Yes. Right? <laughs> and then once we got the German currency, 
then suddenly we got German interest rates, which are much, much lower. We got German capital inflows. So it's, it's, it's like a trick. It's like a confidence trick. Okay, so, so how is that going to work then in South America? So this will take about 20 years. It's not going to be something that's done. So what they, first off, they have to align fiscal policy. So what they would have to they have to have the same general budget deficits for a period of time. Because yeah, currently, uh, Argentina's inflation is 100%. Yeah, So and it's driven largely by a combination of fiscal deficit, yeah. so printing money to pay civil servants, and a current account deficit where the currency is falling. Because they import a lot, the more the currency falls, the higher the rate of inflation because they import lots and lots of goods. And consequently, every time the peso falls, the rate of inflation just rises. So they have to stop that. Right. And in order to stop that, they need to have a credible new plan. And what they're saying now is our credible new plan is to come up with this economic regional currency, largely based initially on Brazil and Argentina, but then maybe Uruguay and Colombia. Yeah, but will they have to back that up with a common market? Well, they've had a common market for quite some time. It's called a Mercosur, which is the South American common market. But they will have to back it up with interestingly, dollars, that this is the weird thing, right? So in order to have a hard currency, you need reserves of other hard currencies. So basically what happens is the reason the euro is very, very strong is that the European Central Bank has huge reserves of other currencies. And if the euro starts to get weak, for example, and the European Central Bank wants to make it stronger, what they do is they buy their own currencies by selling other currencies, yes, yeah, right? Yeah. So you need a reserve of other currencies to sell them. So what the Argentinians and Brazilians will need is a very large IMF reserve to help them right. create this currency, number okay. one. And number two, then they'll have to decide, do they want to fix the currency or target it against the dollar to yeah. give it credibility, or do they want to let it float? Now, we're in deep in the in the weeds of monetary economics here, John. Yeah. But I, this is like, this is my stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not being Novak Djokovic. I'm thinking about <laughs> Mundell and Fleming and uh, monetary theory and the optimal currency area. You're but, a bit more like McEnroe now, in fairness. Oh, well, that's true. That's, I tell you, I interviewed McEnroe years ago. Did you? I interviewed McEnroe for a show called Agenda. Remember that show I did yes. years ago? Yeah, yeah. And, and a couple of things I, I noticed about McEnroe. One... He's got big hair. He's got big hair. Very twitchy. Very twitchy. Oh, right. But, and this is a very strange thing, he had the narrowest shoulders I've ever seen on a a bloke. I mean, this is a guy. It's a very strange thing. Because you think this is a guy who was the world number one tennis player, right? He won everything. Yeah. And he was really slight, like really slight. And it wasn't that he was just skinny. His frame was really small. And then you realise McEnroy never, he was never powerful. He was just skillful. Yeah, so he quick. wasn't that big serve volley guy. Yeah. He was just cleverer than everybody else, and he was a lefty as well. So this kind of this sort of left approach to everything. The amazing thing was, I sat and talked to him, and he sat down and he was here doing some sort of doubles tournament seniors, and I sat down and I knew he was very very political. He's a huge Democrat, right? Okay, a New York Democrat, and the whole he's yeah. Queens. He's from Flushing. He's from yeah. you know, he's a proper New Yorker. And he hated Hillary Clinton. This is the interesting thing. Oh. So Hillary Clinton was parachuted in to the New York for a Senate. Thing, yeah. And he was an old Democrat thinking, like, who is this kind of celebrity thing? But it's interesting. I asked him about politics. And he said, oh, man. He said, thank you so much for asking these questions. He said, I thought you were going to ask me about the baseline. <laughs> 
and he said, you know, he said, I'm sick of uh, Did he go off him on then? Yeah, completely. Oh, actually, nice. I should, should we, 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 we might find the interview and put it up actually on the podcast. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. But so that's McEnroe, okay. tennis, Argentina, Brazil, the whole thing. Let's let's come back to this because I, I find this fascinating. And you've yeah. just opened up a whole I was going to say can of worms. Maybe it's not, <laughs> it's a, can not of, a can of worms. <laughs> no, but there's a, there's a whole load of issues there. I'd love to come back to this. But before we do that, let's pay the old bills. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's so many questions, Mac. I mean, <laughs> let me just ask: How do you how do you begin? You mentioned the euro as as a blueprint. Like, how did that come about? Really interesting question. It's a little bit interesting about recent monetary history. So, the European Union has since 1957, which was the Treaty of Rome, always had as its objective the increased political and economic integration of Europe Mm. so that we would go from a loose federation to something much, much tighter. And there were two strains of thought in Europe at the time as to how we do it. One were called the economists and one were called the monetarists, right? Yeah. So the economists believed that over time, we would gradually trade more together. And as we traded more together and people married and people worked and they lived and capital flowed, et cetera, that gradually over time, the conditions that our friends Mundell and Fleming in Mm. Canada came up with would gradually mean that the integration of Europe would happen slowly, but through trade and currency and, and capital flows. That's the slow approach. There was another approach, which was called the monetarist approach. This is all in the 1970s, right? Yeah. And that was by mainly French bureaucrats who believed, no, the way you integrate is you fix the currency, Right. And you force integration and force the harmonization of policies through the currency. So how they did that was they said, okay, we'll set up a thing called the ERM, the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, right? Or the EMS, the European Monetary System. Yeah. And what we will do is because the Germans in the 1970s 
managed to be the only country that didn't have inflation of all the European countries. We said, okay, let's follow the Germans. So it meant that the Irish currency, the Greek currency, this Italian currency, you know, the lira, the peso, the French franc would all become part of the German zone. Mm. In effect, we were becoming house trained, right? To yeah. be little Germans, right? And this all came from a house policy. Trained. Exactly. <laughs> Look at it that way, right? I thought, like, we were peeing all over the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. And the Germans came in, so we'll not have any of that, right? So this all starts. You're going to be kick of the hole. This is all starts in 1980, right? Yeah. In 1982, with the election in France of Francois Mitterrand, the first properly socialist French yes. president. François Mitterrand fought the election on the idea that he was going to turn France into a socialist paradise. They were going to increase government spending, all that sort of stuff. The minute he gets elected, the French begin to sell their own currency. They think, if your policies go ahead, this country is going to have rapid inflation. The French franc is going to fall. You know what? I'm not going to wait for that. I'm going to go out and buy German marks, right? as a saving mechanism, mm. like our Argentinians. Yeah. So suddenly in the Elysee Palace in France, Mitron realizes, I've just been elected president, but I've no control. Because the French people are giving me the two fingers by selling French francs, buying Deutschmarks, and says, you know what, Francois, you may well be president, but we want the policy of the Germans because it's stable and right. secure yeah. and it's anti-inflationary. So suddenly... The French, and imagine how difficult this is for the French to accept, right? After mm. the Second World War, after de Gaulle and all that sort of stuff. The French are now realizing, shit, our economic policy is made in Bonn, not in Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So they announced the policy called the Franc Fort, the strong franc. And Mitterrand said, in effect, we are now going to hitch our wagon to Germany. So France will no longer have its own sovereign policy. We're going to be in effect in this German worldview. And by doing that, he was also signaling to the European part of his party, the Socialist Party in, in France, which have always been pro-European, mm. that we're going towards integration, right? So the rest of the world sees this. As it, when I say the rest of the world, the rest of Europe sees this. Yeah. And we all, bit by bit, begin to start following the French, right? Which is basically, we're allowing the Germans set the tone. So... You've asked the question, how do you go about yeah. creating a currency? It takes a long, long time. You have to have become house trained, as I said. Mm-hmm. Now, Ireland, remember we had the punt, yes, which I had yeah. a great little currency, right? Yeah. It was meant to be a hard currency, but we devalued it seven times on the sly because we couldn't <laughs> keep up with the Germans, right? right? Yeah, and yeah. what happens is if you attach your currency to another currency, and if people don't believe you are strong enough to maintain that link, what will happen is the rate of interest that you charge will be much higher than the currency you're attached to because you have to reassure capital that the risk of devaluation is going to be mitigated against by this rate of interest, right? Now, the problem with that is that that makes your economy slow down. And if your economy slows down, what tends typically to happen is the pressure to devalue increases. Right. So you're in an intellectual... So this is what happened with the punt. This is what okay. happened in the punt all the way through the ages. It's like an intellectual cul-de-sac. And of course, it didn't help that both Charlie Hawhey and Gareth Fitzgerald, both apparently with degrees in economics, allegedly, both spent like Juan Perón in Argentina. Right. Right? So these talk but, about... But wasn't that the famous speech by Antelli from Charlie Hawhey, we're living beyond, beyond our, our means. means. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. at least Charlie Hawhey said that, right? And... Yeah. 
But then, of course, he wasn't living. He was he was he <laughs> was, was up to yeah, with everything, right? Fitzgerald, maybe even worse, kept talking about having some sort of disciplined monetary policy, but was just spending like a drunken sailor all the time. Yeah. So you had all these things going on in Ireland at the time. It was like a perfect storm of bad policy, bad politicians, kind of silliness. And obviously what happened is that Irish people amazingly voted with their feet. We emigrated and we yeah. took money out of the country. Because you remember those, remember the whole bank thing that people had bank accounts all over the world? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The same idea. Yes, grow this. Yes, grow this. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so what happens is the economy, as I come back to, always adjusts to reality. So the euro then is kind of wavering. And what happens is the Berlin Wall comes down. Right? Yeah. Nobody expects it. Yeah. And the French think, okay, Berlin Wall's come down. Germans want to reunify. We don't want them to reunify because we're scared of them. Because the last time they did it, they did the tank thing. Yeah. We don't like the tank thing. <laughs> tank thing, not good. Right? So if they're going to do the tank thing, we're going to have to figure out a way of embedding them deeper into Western Europe. How do we do that? What we're going to say to them is, you can reunify with East Germany yeah. as long as you give up the Deutschmark. And that's how it all came about. So it would have taken years to get to the euro yeah. if it wasn't for German unification. So Helmut Kohl is faced with this dilemma, which is the French say to Kohl, you can have East Germany, you can reunify, but you can't have the Deutschmark. The price of German unification is monetary union with yeah. us. Right? And why did the French want monetary union? Because it meant that they would control monetary policy. Surprise, surprise, who's the head of the ECB? Christine Lagarde, a French woman. It's yeah. all a French idea, okay? But basically, the French and the Italians figured out that this is the way they could get their hands on German money by basically hijacking German unification. And saying, well, if you want that, you got to give us this. Okay, that's, it's a fascinating story, that. But bring it back to South America. How is that going to work? So the, so the Latin Americans will need a bit of luck. Yeah. They will need to make their policies subservient to the greater good, which in a continent with the exception of Chile and Uruguay has never really adopted economic policies that are in any way mainstream. Mm. Right? I mean, this Peronism is alive and well in Argentina. They just spend all the time. And of course, what happens in Argentina is that the middle class becomes unbelievably insecure and it yeah. emigrates. So if you saw, yeah. for example, most of the Argentinian supporters at the Qatar worker, people were amazed how many Argentinians yeah, there were. There were loads of them, wasn't there? But they're all Argentines who live abroad. They right. weren't coming from Argentina in the main. They were Argentines living in London. But in Spain is the base. Spain and Italy is the big place for them. Yeah, yeah, right? That's yeah. where they emigrate to. Because most Argentinians or many Argentines, as I told you before, have Italian passports. Yes. Yeah, right? Yeah. So that they didn't work in the European Union. So what happened in Argentina is you have to stop that. That'll take a complete change. And maybe Martin will be the man to do it. He runs his own political party and he's very, very brilliant in terms of economics. Brazil, the same. You look around Ireland, you hear Portuguese everywhere. Brazilian kids are here in their yeah, yeah, thousands, right? So they have to stop that. Maybe impalatably for them, a country that has its, got its act together in Latin America is Chile. Right, right, okay. So Chile after Pinochet. So what Pinochet did was appalling, right? First of all, killing Absolutely. Allende, yeah. killing 
students, killing the opposition, enforcing martial law. But what he did do was they began to run the economy in a way in which Chileans got stability. And the Chilean economy has been much, much richer. But now Chile has been run by a former Croatian, a Croatian guy, very left guy. Oh, right. right? Okay. There's a big Croatian population in, in Chile, right? Is Massive. There? Yeah, Why? yeah. Why? Massive. Oh, well, there's, there's two sides. One is the Croatians, Dalmatians, Italians. They were hit at the turn of the last century by a blight of the vines. So basically they lived off wine production. Right, okay. And there was a massive blight of vines all over Europe, like our own potato famine. Mm. And suddenly rural Dalmatians and rural uh, Italians left in their millions to America, to Argentina, all that sort of thing, around 1910. And they went to Chile. And they went to Chile. The other thing is a lot of, let's say, Croats left after the Second World War. Very right. quickly. Yes, yeah. Remember okay. of the Ustase, yeah. the Croatian Nazis? And they all found their way to Argentina and Chile as well. Right. So there's two boosts. But this guy is, is, is this new president in Chile is one of them. So what you find is in order to get monetary union working for Brazil and Argentina will take decades. But it could happen. It could happen. Is it a, in any way down to politics in terms of left and right. So yeah, now well, you have two Lula. The, yeah, you have the lefties Fernandes in. and Lula. But if Bolsonaro or his ilk got, got back into Brazil, would yeah, I would say would that, that not on the, Yeah, I think it would. I think it would. Okay. I think that what you have, what I've noticed about Latin America and when you travel there is the extraordinary antipathy towards the Yankees, mm. Americans, to North, North Americans. Yeah. And the feeling, particularly on the left and on the center left, that the Americans have consistently involved themselves, interfered with, and destabilized Latin American countries. Yeah, they're not wrong. And they're not wrong. So if you take the the Che Guevara view of the world, and that basically the CIA has, over the last 50 years, actively destabilized any popular or populist, they call them Bolivarian movements in Latin America, after Simon Bolivar the first independent guy of Colombia and Peru and la, 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 Venezuela. So the Americans have always meddled with Latin America such that destabilizing Latin America has often been the price the Americans have paid for keeping the left out because their big fear after Cuba was that Fidel Castro would become a contagious effect all over Mm -hmm. Latin America. And I'm always intrigued that the Latin American left is very strong and very volatile and extremely, Mm. but the, you know, Latin America is the great, great unfinished promise of the continent. You know, it has everything. Yeah. It has the people, it has the resources, it has the climate, it has everything. And it has the bulk, it has the heft. Mm. I mean, in terms of hundreds of millions of people. And yet it is always underperformed. And the most conspicuous example of underperformance is always emigration, right? So in the 80s, when we were underperforming, we left. You left, I left, everyone left, right? Same in Latin America. So, you know, Latin America's failure is much more evident on the streets of LA than it is, ironically, on the streets of BA, because that's where you see the Latin Americans have gone. I told you I was in Miami, Mm. all Latin Americans. Yeah. But there has to be a moment where Latin America stops underperforming 
and begins to outperform, as it did from 1900 to 1940. It was the best performing region of the global economy. That's what people forget. Yeah. And it can go back there, but it'll demand extraordinary discipline when it comes to, like, Germanic discipline, house training. Yeah. You know? We we wouldn't have done it on our own if it wasn't for the, yeah, for the sure. Germans. Yeah. If it wasn't for Gunter, we'd still be faffing around the place, right? <laughs> but Gunter said, look, you, this is what you got to do. And we did it. And we had a massive recession in the 80s, maybe to achieve that. Whether once it was achieved, you were kind of on your bike. And the Latin Americans need something similar. I'm not sure they have it yet. But I think what we could do on this episode, John, we conclude here, we might go down to Latin America in a couple of weeks, talk to Martin, get his view, and maybe get somebody else's view too. Maybe drink some wine. I'd love to drink some Latin American wine, some Argentinian wine. <laughs> always, John, always. We should, have, you know, we should have, you know, people have a book club. We should have a little wine club. Oh, absolutely. I'm okay. all for that. Listen, we'll talk to you more about Latin America in a couple of weeks. <laughs>